the last time we chatted for the podcast, we were just talking about like, whatever and just see what happens. Well, it was randomness and it was also this theme of growing old on the web, right? I made my first webpage in 97. I mean, it wasn't anything amazing. So it was weird that I'm in that generation where as a kid, I made the early web pages. I wasn't around the beginning of the internet or beginning of computing. I'm not that old, but you know, I'm old enough in web years. It's ironic that this conversation may lead to me trying to get off the web. <laughs> so I asked my friend Sean to be on the podcast. He listened to a bunch of them and he found you and he pinged me. He was like, hey, he's gone <laughs> from everything. <laughs> yeah, I was at this virtual academic conference because all the COVID stuff. The cool thing about online is that you can watch the talks and there's the kind of back channel chatter, right? There's the chats. And then some people just private chat you on Zoom or something. And it was hilarious because yesterday someone was like, oh, yeah, I recognize you. You have these blog posts about research and grad school, whatever, and then YouTube videos. And I'm like, yeah, funny you mentioned that. I'm trying to totally get off and you can just join my newsletter if you want any updates. So it's ironic that timing all happened now. Yeah, you mentioned this in the video. It's not like a sudden thing. You've been thinking about this for a while anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, the only YouTube video on my channel is... Uh, <laughs> It's like this stereotypical thing where people quit YouTube. I wasn't even meant as clickbait, but I didn't explain anything. It wasn't like a long video. I needed a placeholder there just so people don't freak out that my channel is gone, right? Didn't think I like freaked out. And then I just basically linked to my newsletter and just said, if you really want more content like this, just subscribe. I'm trying to play with this more private format. So yeah, it, it was coming for a while. I think the start of it was really maybe in February. So life in the U.S. was pretty normal. This is before the COVID stuff, the U.S. quarantines and lockdowns. And I just decided all of a sudden when I got up one morning or the weekend just to delete Facebook and to delete Twitter as much as I could. I, I use this thing called Tweet Delete. I just pay $10 for it. It seems good to just delete all my tweets. And I unfollowed everybody. So my account was basically inactive. I still wanted to keep Twitter because I had a, a good amount of followers. I had a verified account and just for DMs and stuff in case people want to reach me. So I kept that around. But Facebook, I just completely deleted because I hadn't really been using Facebook for many years anyway. I just kind of lurked on there. I didn't actively participate. And then I think I deleted LinkedIn also, which I didn't really use. It was just kind of there. So that was kind of the start of the end. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was February this year. And even before, maybe a year or two before, I decided to not have anything on my phone. So I try to get email off my phone and social media. I actually never bothered to install the Facebook apps, public social media. It was just Twitter on the phone. But that's already pretty addictive because it's public. It's pretty engaging. If you're on the phone, you, you just check it a lot and reply to people and post stuff. So I got that off my phone a few years ago. So that you know, was already one path there. And then I try to like get email off my phone unsuccessfully. I try to hide the app or not have an email app and just use the browser. Mm -hmm. And like, but then I would just always find myself clicking the browser, clicking on Gmail or whatever. So just not using social media or posting stuff on mobile already kind of slowed things down a lot. And then I decided to go more cold turkey in February. And then just this month, a week ago, uh, I decided just to delete Twitter completely. So it, they give you up to a year so you can deactivate your account. So if you log in within a year, they can reactivate it. So that's nice. It also means no one takes my screen name <laughs> for a year or whatever. So that, that I'm totally off. And then I think I went through Google 
just for my name. And I just found random accounts I had. I never mm. used, right? Quora, I had a few posts. I had a Medium thing. I had a few videos on Vimeos. I just deleted them because I had them backed up anyways. I was not that active in any of them, but it was just nice to clean them. So basically, I wanted to make it so that my public web presence was just minimal. And I think the biggest thing that we can talk about is beyond just YouTube, which I had like hundreds of videos up, it's just my website, which had hundreds of articles. And I decided to basically get rid of them. So now my website is just one page, my publications and my professional info. It's like very vestigial. It has some links to like FAQs. So the articles kind of live on in some ways. The interesting thing is that because I've been accumulating all this stuff on the web for decades, there's sort of a responsibility in a way not to just ditch everything. It's kind of like if you just like pulled all your code offline, yeah, you could do that. But it's kind of like an <laughs> asshole move if people were relying on it. Well, that's funny because that actually... That happened, yeah. That is left pad. Yeah, <laughs> like the left pad of the web. What I did was on Google Analytics, I just saw the articles that people you know, were reading the most because they probably linked to it, right? And also videos, not as much. So most of those things were advice about grad school and those things from Googling around. So I kept those online, but I had like a disclaimer at the top that says like, don't link to it because this is just an archive, right? Basically an archive. I just kept the selected few there just it wouldn't break people's links. But most things I took down, I felt pretty good about this 90-10 rule. Like that 10% of stuff, I'll keep those up and it's fine. I just won't link to them in the future, but it's sort of like my own internet archive in a sense, right? So it's the same URL. You can see mm. the page that says, this is archive is not being updated. It's like disclaimer. Of course, the internet archive, it crawls everything. So if people really want it, they could go to the internet archive and look at my website. So that's fine. Like I'm okay right. with that. I'm not like, I'm not trying to like erase myself completely, right? Because in practical terms, there's Internet Archive and there's other caches and people might take snippets of your articles. I mean, you obviously can't control stuff you put out. But to the greatest extent possible, I, I felt like that was like a reasonable design. And we can go into details, but that's like the nuts and bolts of it. I guess from here on out, at this point, I would not want to write new stuff as much publicly. But for the old stuff, I basically took as much of it down as possible and then I kept the links alive for the most popular one. So like the YouTube videos, for example, the reason why they would watch is probably because there's links to it from somewhere else, right? And it's not that people are organically discovering it. They're linked from resource pages or advice pages from other people. So I kept those as unlisted so that when people click on it, it's there, but it doesn't show up on YouTube searches. So if you search for me on YouTube, none of my videos show up. There are conference talks I give and that's fine. That's other people's videos. That's totally okay. But yeah, that's sort of the nuts and bolts of it. That's really interesting. I was going to bring that up. Essentially, you're just making all your stuff unlisted. Like if someone else found it or knows about it, they can see it. But you're not going to actively tell people, here, look at my stuff. I think that's a good way to put it. Some stuff is down, right? Some stuff is private or they're deleted, essentially, right? But the stuff that has been viewed the most that I want to keep up, they're basically unlisted. And also like the pages themselves, I put no index so that... In theory, the search engines would not crawl or make snippets of it. So it's not discoverable by new people. But if old people already have links to it, it's fine. It's not like they're secrets or anything. Yeah, I think that's a like important distinction because I feel like the, the first question people are going to ask is just why. Mm-hmm. But it's just not what you might initially think of. I don't want to get rid of my presence on the internet, but I don't want to in- introduce new things. Yeah. 
but the things that are already there, I don't want it to break. Also, if you really want to dig into it, letting them, in a way, you kind of have to because it's already on the archive. Yeah. So you're not going to like make it harder for people that really want to know who you are, which I think is good because those people are putting in the time to want to <laughs> look into it. So it's like, I guess, go ahead. Really good or really bad. Right. It can be bad too. The people who are the most bad or the most good. Yeah. I mean, this is all good brains. I mean, I talked to Nadia about this kind of, I actually mm. talked to her right before I did all the mm. deletion and that episode hasn't aired yet. And I have to think about how do I air these episodes now that I don't have anything. I mean, I think what I do is on my homepage, I still list the podcasts because that's something I still want to share. So I just list them so that people can direct click on them. And then you know, if you want to share, it's fine. It's totally okay. So what I was saying is we have one model. I mean, this whole brainstorming is good for me now because I want to write this up in a newsletter of like, what is this whole point of this? So you're helping me brainstorm. I guess one thing is like, there was a moment in time, well, not a moment, a phase I had in my life, right? Like, let's say the past decade, right? I've been more visible online. I've done more stuff openly online. And it's definitely helped me both personally and creatively, and also for my career, probably that a lot of that resonate with you too, that like being a bit more public online, that helped you form your early career and mine as well. But now I'm at a, a farther along point in my career in life. I'm like, okay, that was a good phase, but I don't really quote unquote need it going forward. The way to think about it is if in five years time, 10 years, whatever, the new generation of people coming up in computer science or in academia or in whatever in my field, if they don't know me for anything that I do online, because I haven't done anything, that's fine. I'm just a random person. That's totally fine. They might have happened to find some old stuff. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Like I'm not ashamed of it, right? <laughs> I'm not denying it. But going forward, it's okay if people just see I have a simple web page, just like all professors do that just have their professional info. And oh, yeah, just like another guy who just does research and teaches and has some papers. Cool. Like, I'm totally cool with that, you know. But I had that phase where I did that. It's like, oh, yeah, when I was young, I was in a rock band for like 10 years. And now I, I'm an accountant or something. <laughs> yeah, you're talking about this transition. And even thinking of that is, I could say, mature in a way where it's like you understand mm -hmm. that there are phases in life. Nothing is forever. And it's good for us as we grow older, time passes by to understand where are we and what do we want. And I think it's good that you're like thinking that a lot of us just go with the flow or just what you're used to or what everyone else does. Yeah. You know, there are things that are like good forcing functions, right? Barring a forcing function for anything, some people just transition out of it, right? For example, use is a good example, right? There was no real turning point or anything. I, I started on Facebook very early, right? Because I'm of the age where it started in my junior year of college in February 2004, was when it started at Harvard and MIT. I got my account in November 2004, which was less than a year after it was out when it started spreading to the Northeast colleges and stuff. So that was the start of my senior year of college. Throughout college and grad school, more and more people were on it. And it was very active, right? We're all students. It was very active and it was a place to be. And then eventually when people graduated, got jobs, had kids, started families, it became less active, right? At least for my crowd. Of course, people use it a lot, right? I mean, parents use it, share pictures of kids, extended family, blah, blah, blah. I mean, obviously billions of people use it. But so for my kind of peer group, we just kind of gradually leveled out of it and didn't use it as much. And it made sense to just delete it. Or if I didn't, it's fine. It didn't have a noticeable impact on my life. So it kind of gradually went out. There are other things that have a more discreet thing. So for example, if something like really bad happens to you online, then that might be a cause for like, okay, I got to like 
quit this or whatever, right? In all sorts of settings. So I never really had one of those. But then, like you were kind of alluding to, if you don't have a sudden event, then you could just kind of drag on with the status quo for a while. Is this really what I want? I don't know, but let's just keep going. So I decided that I feel like this was a good time, I guess, by the time we air this or whatever. So I've been now on this career path for six years, right, as an assistant professor. So recently, I mean, it's not public yet until July, but I recently got tenure, which is very good. Wow, congrats. Thank you. Officially happens July 1st. So I felt like that was a good milestone, right? Okay, this is a new career phase. And I want to think about not just starting from scratch. I still have my same job, but I feel like there was a very discreet point here that I'm like, let's just reboot and let's just clear this out. Not that there's any like correlation between that and deleting my website, but this is a good checkpoint in my career. And it means that I'm more established now in my career. I don't necessarily need to publicize or do the public stuff as much. Not that I actually needed to, but I think you get what I mean. It's a good excuse or a forcing function to be like, okay, let's reevaluate what I want for the next phase of my life or career. It, it sort of reminds me of when, you know, people go from middle school to high school or mm-hmm. high school to college, they have that. There's a phrase where like they, they change what they wear or their yeah, personality because yeah. they want to restart, you know, in a way we're all doing that. That's a big one from high school to college because you're literally moving and these people are new. That's actually a pretty good analogy. Or when you graduate college, you start your first job, like these really discreet things. I mean, I guess the other thing that's related now that I'm also getting a bit older too, with tenure and with me being in my late 30s now, I guess the way to think about it is this thought experiment, like how much longer do I keep going for in that sense, right? Do I just keep doing videos, web stuff, social media stuff? It's fine. I mean, people can do it if, if they keep doing it. But I just felt like I was gradually getting more and more out of tune with kind of the zeitgeist and what stuff was going on. Then you just start becoming in, in a more out of touch like an old person and trying to keep up <laughs> online and stuff. How much longer do you keep going for? Right? Am I going to be like 70 and like tweeting with 20 year olds and stuff and like trying to keep up with the latest memes? I don't see myself doing that. So then it's like, all right, I'm going to extrapolate to 70. I'm not going to be like posting social media at 70. Do I do that at age 60? No, probably not. At age 50? I don't know. Sometime you got to stop doing that. So I decided, okay, why don't I just stop right now? <laughs> that is fascinating because I'm sure there are people that are like, no, I'm going to be doing this forever. You know, like sort of like, sure, yeah, this I mean, is my career or this is my I thing, you know. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, we don't really want to change. It's hard for us to think what we're going to be like in yeah. the next years. I was reminded of a quote where when you're 30, you look at your 20-year-old self and you're like, wow, that person was really dumb. But you, you always do that whenever you go to 40 and you're like, oh, my 30-year-old self is dumb. But you never say like, oh, that means I'm always dumb. It's in retrospect and you don't really know like how you change. I guess it's kind of interesting that you can anticipate like, okay, I don't know if I want to continue doing this. But I mean, some people, they probably still enjoy you know, yeah. all that stuff you were talking about, then and obviously that's fine. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, it's everyone's personal decision. Yeah, I mean, right. not saying that there's no age limit or anything. I, I guess just like for myself, it's like during every phase of life, you want to maybe present yourself in a certain way, right? And I mean, people talk about this a lot with, mm-hmm. if you've been on the web or on the internet for a long time, there is this context collapse issue of stuff you wrote 10, 20 years ago on some random form. That's obviously not you today, but it may be embarrassing or you may not want that to be representative. Even if people know it's from 10 years ago, it's just kind of weird and stuff. Not that I had anything that weird, 
but that does catch up with you, right? That if your whole life is archived online or whatever. Um, so mm. um, it's a personal decision, right? I'm actually reminded of a story. I did meet someone randomly and this is more of content other people put about you. So I yeah, don't want to yeah. describe what happened, but essentially some organization posted something about them and they agreed to it. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's not like bad stuff. It's just about their life. It's personal, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and then eventually a few years later, you're like, I don't know if I want that on there. And you ask them, can you take it down? They're like, well, yeah. it's ours now. And they didn't do anything bad. They just don't want that there. And you can't do anything. You don't own the content anymore. And that, that sucks. I mean, fortunately, so far, I mean, knock on wood, most of the stuff I do is posted on my own sites and properties. So I can take that down, right? So if you search for me, there's like interviews and other stuff for, from other people, but that's fine. I guess I don't have any super old content that's owned by other people. Uh, maybe it's just a sign of the times, right? Like I didn't grow up during that time where there was a lot of content created by others. And I guess a, a thing that was a pleasant surprise is how relatively easy it's been for me to pull down stuff, actually. So obviously on my own website, it's easy because I control it all. On YouTube, they make it pretty easy. Right? You can just bulk private everything. And most good platforms, they make it pretty easy to delete your stuff, like in general, that you created. Right? If someone else, it's their content. You can't tell them to delete stuff, obviously. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. It reminds me of the fact that like, we probably sign up for like hundreds of just websites and services all the time and we just forget about them. And and even if I don't have data on there, it's more like I don't want to get hacked. So I'm not doing a full digital scrub, right? I mean, this really isn't for like privacy as much, right? The full digital scrub is like every random account you've had and then they probably sold your thing or, or the company got acquired, right? You know, really interesting stories are from people who are transgendered, right? They change their gender so that they mm. change their name everywhere online. So I know some people who've done that and people who've talked about that. And this goes in this whole issue of name policies and just account information. Right? If, if you change your, you know, not just change your gender, but just changing your name, right? that's just the general form, right? If you want to change your name for whatever reason, whether it's a gender transition or other identity transitions, you have to change your name everywhere, you know, in legal documents, in all your accounts, in like, you know, Google, or I heard it's really hard to change your Google name or something like that. I know in some places make it easier than others, right? And so that's much harder. So for me, it was a very lightweight sort of, I'm just going to take down whatever I can and whatever I can't, it's fine. Right. I I guess it's just going back to what I was saying earlier. It's hard to kind of differentiate between people that want to take everything down versus people like you that are saying, I just don't want to be public in the same way as before. Yeah. Because you don't see a lot of people doing that. I mean, you don't broadcast that either. By definition, yeah. I didn't do like that. I'm quitting Facebook. I'm quitting Twitter on Twitter or Facebook, right? Ironically, (laughs) yeah. I think that gets to the heart of that being quiet or I guess silent on social media. It, it doesn't work because inherently it's about posting. So yeah. it, it is weird to say like, I'm going to be quiet or I'm going to quit Twitter on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. It almost seems like you're attracting attention to yourself in that way. Right. I mean, that's fine. I mean, people have quit Facebook before me and they post a, a rant about it and quit, which is fine. I mean, that's like yeah, yeah. understandable. Right. Or they're like, here's my email info, right? They just do one final post. You know, you should email me if you want to get in touch, but I'm not going to check anymore. That has been a trend too, right? I mean, um, in recent years. Right, especially now. Especially now. But, you know, all throughout the last five years, you know, there's kind of a 
getting off of Facebook or social media sort of thing. But I mean, another thing is I'm looking through some of my YouTube videos and articles, the technical stuff I post, right? Like I have these programming tutorials. One is that they get old, right? I mean, technical stuff gets old, right? They kind of get stale and outdated. And the other one is that there's so much stuff out there now tech-wise that I don't really feel like much is lost if my videos are not there because I'm not like making a career being a tech YouTuber or whatever, right? So it's like, it's fine. A lot of these videos I made early on when I was teaching, right? It's like, oh, I make a Git tutorial. It's nothing like spectacular, but people watched it. I just put it online and they searched for it. And I just used it. I embedded it in my class notes and stuff. And it's like now five, 10 years have passed. And there's so many resources online for programming. If, if they're missing my few articles or videos, no one's going to cry. They'll find some other ones. Yeah. Huh. It's interesting because like that's an argument for people to not make YouTube videos because they think there's so many. Yeah. But that's when they're getting started. Yeah. I mean, that's a distinction when we talk about that. Like, I think that the stuff I would suggest for someone to get started is very different than someone like me who's been doing it for a long time, right? So another reason that I, I guess I don't care as much anymore about this is that I don't really care as much about making quote unquote introductory content anymore, right? Because I've seen so much of it. I've done so much of it. But, you know, my suggestion for people who want to get into tech blogging or YouTubing and, or live streaming or whatever, it's fine to do introductory stuff. I right? have this whole like Dev2 network where people mostly write introductory posts. Right? Here's how you use Pandas and Python. A lot of it is just getting practice. I'm learning. I'm excited about this. I want to share these lessons. And they're very introductory for the most part. But I'd encourage people to do that because it is a form of creative expression and getting your thoughts out there. And if you're a beginner, by definition, your stuff is gonna be introductory. And that's fine. I don't want to discourage people from making stuff. Right? I want to be very clear about that. I don't want to be like, oh, don't make introductory stuff because there's so much of it. <laughs> yeah, I guess the caveat with all this is like, you're from the point of view saying I've been doing this for a while yeah, I'm in yeah. a different place now. The other point about introductory content is that as time goes on, there's going to be more and more new people to mm-hmm. whatever it is, right? And so it's actually more, it's necessary for people to make new content and, and introductory content because uh, the amount of people that have had X years of experience gets smaller as the total pool of people in programming or whatever it is, right? Yeah, I think this this dovetails really well with kind of traditional computer science education, right? So a lot of the online textbooks or even my Python tutor site and stuff, textbooks and courses, MOOCs, online courses, YouTube videos, resources, the majority of those are aimed at beginners, right? Just getting started kind of CS1 sort of beginners. And if you want to have the most impact, that's what you do. Because like you're saying, by definition, most people are beginners. There's always going to be new beginners every year learning. And then, you know, if the field is growing, then the number of beginners keeps growing. If you want to just have impact numbers wise, that's the most bang for the buck. But then I just don't find it as interesting. I've been offered, can you do like an introductory Python online course? And I'm like, there's a bunch of other people doing that. It's great. But I don't feel like the N plus one version would be that great for the world, right? Whereas I have been thinking about stuff with a Python tutor site, what I can do that's unique to my site or that I could provide value that's unique, I would be more motivated by, right? Even if it doesn't impact as many people, right? If you you really want to impact the most people, you write a very introductory guide. Yeah, not even like quality and quantity, but more like depth and like surface level. This is similar to your approach, I think, of taking most of the stuff off versus with the newsletter. Even though I'm still on social media, I'm definitely posting a lot less just feeling the same thing as you. Mm -hmm. Maybe not for the same reasons. I don't even know. I just don't feel 
like I want to engage as much yeah, as yeah. well. I don't want to post every week, donate to my Patreon. If you look at the graphs, which helps. isn't public, it's only going down. Like mm-hmm. every month or week, another person stops donating, right? If you don't do anything, it just kind of trickles down. Which I haven't. So right. I kind of just leave it there. So like the first month, it was like really high. And the, since the last you know two years, it just keeps slowly yeah. going. Because you haven't actively cultivated it. I, I don't expect anyone to continue donating for X years. If they even decide to do it at all, that's like awesome. Like uh, the fact that someone even bothered to sign up and do all that is good. But if new people are following you and they don't know about your Patreon, like how do you do that? But I just don't want to do that because to me, it doesn't feel genuine, even though another point is that everything we do is marketing. So right, right. I kind of want people that really care about what I'm doing to support me if they sort of know who I am it's fine if they don't support no I, I totally get what you mean it's like I'm almost jealous in a sense of people who are unabashedly capitalistic right so I know people who literally their goal is to run a business right so they have a business newsletter and it's like all the business hacks you have growth marketing hacks just like subscribe to this thing and it's just full on whatever yeah. latest research in clickbait science right it's because that's their consulting business I mean you've talked a lot about this in many podcasts and and talks and stuff is this sort of open source citizenship kind of doing stuff out of altruism and a willingness to share. And I think a lot of stuff I do just in writing and videos is the same kind of ethos of I'm not expecting to make a living off of it, but like there's this ethos. So then it does feel a bit weird to be thinking about marketing hacks for doing an A-B test of like different kinds of Patreon messages (laughs) and stuff, right? Whereas if you're full on an entrepreneur, building your online business, then you just go full on doing A-B tests and different kinds of sponsorship. But since you're not full on, that does feel a bit weird. But on the other hand, you have to make a living too. So it's a hard balance. Yeah, I I think you have to have a balance because you'd be kidding yourself. You're like, oh, I'm just going to do my work. That's naive that you could just assume that people are going to support you just because you're doing good work. We all know that because of marketing, the whole industry. But you don't want to turn into a marketing person if you don't want that. I keep saying that the more I think about marketing and money, the more I focus on it. And then yep. eventually I'm not even doing the work I wanted to. Yeah, yeah no, that's huge. That's the kind of old Paul Grandma say of the top thing in your mind, right? The top thought in your head. He was talking in the context of early stage startup founders, right? If you're just two people hacking away, anytime you think about fundraising, it's time you're not thinking about building your product, right? So when money is thinking on the back of your head, it easily creeps up to that you're staying up at night dreaming about like, oh yeah, what if I do this thing for for fundraising or whatever? I think it's very similar in many fields, right? That there's the core creative work you want to do, whether that's code or writing or videos or even a product you're making. And then there's the other stuff around it that's needed. I mean, funding is the main thing to sustain that. And how do you balance that creative thing with trying to keep making a living, which is hard. Yeah, and I, I feel that now. If you make money... You might need to spend money to get other people to do it. The things that you might not want to do that they want to do. That's a whole nother skill. And this is probably why a lot of people, once they get their company bought or it gets bigger, they actually quit because they want to do the startup. Yeah, that's a lot of dreams for for people in that path, right? Of achieving that financial independence, of getting that one-time windfall. It's not you're just sitting in your butt, right? You're probably going to start another company or do some philanthropy or do some angel investing or something. But it's this idea that you've kind of made it in a sense, right? Once you're over that hump, you don't need to worry about money as much so that 
then you have that freedom to think about the next thing. Or some people just keep writing. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is still writing, right? He could have left at any time. I'm sure his days are pretty stressful, but it's his thing, right? All these tech companies, I mean, same thing with Jeff Bezos and Amazon, right? It's one person's thing that they carry through all these years. It's their legacy. So they're probably not going to quit, right? I mean, Bill Gates left, right? That's another great analogy. But he left in like 2000 at the height of his, I mean, also he was admired in all this antitrust stuff. Facebook's the same way. They're under all the scrutiny for everything. So like the Bill Gates model of being willing to step away, even though it's your company and you're, you're a child, right? Yeah. It kind of reminds me, Nadia talks about this a lot, how open source and business relates to just content in general. One example I think of is uh, Ninja, um, the Twitch streamer, right? When I was reading an article about him, how he's making, I don't even know, millions or whatever a month. But he still works uh, really... He still grinds. It's a momentum thing, inertia, mm-hmm. where it's like, you don't want that thing to stop. And you know that once you stop, you're going to be irrelevant. So it's still stress-filled, even though you're making like millions of dollars. And you can't not do it. So he doesn't take vacations. And he works like yeah. however eight hours a day just streaming. Yeah. I think Nadia and I also talked about this. We just made all these comparisons to celebrities. So Jerry Seinfeld, when he had a show in the 90s, right, it was like the most successful sitcom in the 90s, right? And it was eight seasons, I think. And they decided to quit after eight seasons, even though they were on top, or right? they quit number one, right? They're the number one show. And NBC offered them bazillions of dollars to come back, right? But they just felt like creatively, eight seasons, they were pretty spent. Toward the end, they're like, it's fine. But if we try to squeeze out a ninth season or whatever season, we just know that the writing won't be as good. We've already played out all these ideas so many times. We could do it and we'll just make a ton more money, but we already have enough money and let's just quit while we're on top. And the other thing about, I just thought about this morning, kind of quitting in that point when you're on top is also frees up your mind for the next thing, right? They've all had, <laughs> I guess, except for Kramer, who had the you know whole racist rant controversy. They've all had successful careers afterwards, right? Their own different shows afterwards. If they just kept trying to ride Seinfeld for a bit longer, maybe they would have not thought about these opportunities. They would have been kind of washed up old stars. Like, oh yeah, I had this great show in the 90s. I haven't done anything. But by just kind of quitting, you just free up your mind. Larry David did Curb Your Enthusiasm. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, she did Veep and other shows. They all have thriving careers afterwards. They were known for Seinfeld, obviously, but they also had a bunch of stuff afterwards. So I find that's pretty admirable. And, you know, this is obviously all a very first world. And the ninja thing also, it's all very first world problem. I mean, yeah. we're all wealthy, but it's this idea of at that stage, it's not really about the money. Are you willing to step away when you're on top? You have all this momentum. Seinfeld in the late 90s, they're on top of the world, right? So that discipline to be like, no, that's enough. Let's Let's just think about the next phase that's pretty cool no that resonates a lot i think about me quitting my stable adobe job to do this it it makes sense nadia would bring this up because she was in vc and then she went to open source and then she left open source essentially right Mm -hmm. knowing when you kind of did everything you wanted right it's it's really hard it is admirable for people to know okay i don't want to be defined by that stuff it doesn't mean I'm ashamed of it. Yeah. yeah. But, but there's other things that I want to do in my life. And I think that's good to, to pursue that. Yeah. yeah I, the other thing that I have, I have this weird, morbid curiosity. Again, I'm getting older now and stuff. And a lot of these musicians, right? So, you know, music is obviously another very youth centered media and music. These musicians from the 90s that I was into when I was young, now that we're 10, 20 years removed, there are some that have transitioned gracefully, right? But then there are some aging musicians who like really try to hang on to their youth and like 
they're much older now and they're still trying to play the same things and stuff. And it, it just doesn't feel as good, right? You're no longer 25 years old and just jumped around the stage, right? You're like 45 or 50 and still trying to hang on to that nostalgia. I mean, it's fine. People like it, but I just feel like it's a lot more admirable if you can be like, okay, I was in this great rock band in the 90s. We made our money with our thing. That's it. And now I'm doing something else. I'm being a record producer. I'm opening a business. I'm done with that phase of my life. I don't want to be 50 years old and like trying to jump around a stage all night because like, <laughs> you know, I can't do that anymore. You can see how aging musicians, they they want to hold on, right? Because they're like, that's all I've known. Also athletes, right? I mean, athletics is you know, obviously a very physical thing that is inevitable that after those years, you know that you're going to have a decline, but they just want to keep holding on as long as they can because that's all they know, right? Wow. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, honestly, it just makes me think that to do this, you need a lot of wisdom and discernment into your life and everything, and, and especially the physical aspects of it. Yeah. Knowing that you're aging, our bodies are decaying or whatever you want to say, and it sounds bad, but it's like facing reality, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think people can gracefully transition, right? So musician, for example, I mean, you can obviously stay in the industry, but you evolve your music, you evolve your style. Performing is a very physical thing, right? If you're performing like you are when you're young, it is a very physically demanding thing. I've seen some people transition to being record producers or working with younger artists and shaping the business and stuff. So they can still stay in that industry that they're passionate about, right? Or filmmaking, right? So people who are actors, they transition being directors or producers and stuff. Media is another one that's like very physical and very youth driven, right? If you're no longer 20, you can't play in those movies, right? Like you got to find other roles in the industry. Yeah, I guess it does feel like writing is one where a lot of people doing that instead out of all the other things they can be doing, right? Yeah, I mean, you can age well. Actually, Nadia and I had the same conversation. If you're like Stephen King or like a novelist, right? Like it's fine to be older doing that because you're behind the scenes, right? It's it's your writing. It's not your face and your body kind of out there on, on the line. That's something that you can transition into. Other ones are like medicine, right? So in the medical field, right, you're more respected as a doctor as you get older. You want an older doctor who's had more operations and procedures rather than someone brand new. But bringing this all back is that, you know, I feel like a lot of creative fields, tech, design, research, a lot of that is very youth-driven, right? These very new ideas, new frameworks coming out, new tools. <laughs> it's very youth-driven, right? It is has more analogs to this media and pop culture industry than it does to being a doctor or writer. I think that everybody who is in a technical field thinks about that, right? Do I move into management? Do I start my own business? Do I continue down this track and stuff? Because age catches up with everyone. It's just such a depressing episode. I can see that, but I don't know. I feel good about it in a way. This pandemic reminds us of our mortality and yeah. like that you know it is a hundred percent certain that we're gonna die at some point yeah. this reminded us that that was true we forgot about it right yeah yeah and i think that yeah, on the surface it's really it sucks but i think it helps us to question a little bit deeper like my roommate is so interesting he kind of messaged me he's like we should talk about like heaven and i was like whoa why did that come out <laughs> and i was like why did you even think of that and he was like because of the time i was just thinking what is the meaning of life and where are we going yeah, yeah. And i was like that's interesting that that would cause you to think that way but yeah the, the point you brought up is interesting too in a more normal time it feels weird to bring that up, right? Because then people might think, oh, are you depressed? Is there something really serious going on? You're like, no, 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 it's actually good to think about this. And it's like for someone who is, you know, relatively young and healthy, you don't think about it. I mean, people who are 
older, obviously think about it. They think about having a will and how they're going to manage their finances when they're gone and stuff and all the practical things. But for someone younger, yeah, we don't think about this stuff, right? Unless, you know, people have some kind of a disease and stuff, which sucks at any age, right? Yeah, I don't have any fatal issues, but I've had chronic issues for a long time. So the idea of suffering and disease and all this stuff, it does come up a lot. Yeah. And and it, it is hard to talk about. Everyone's just talking about like whatever and then like this serious topic. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to bring it up either because you don't want to make their day sound yeah. bad. And then you get in this own cycle of like, why am I thinking about this and all that? Right, and, right. I mean, I'm sure now everyone's isolated. It's probably really bad. Like just the kinds of things people are thinking about that, but don't feel like they can bring it up to anyone. Mm-hmm. A lot of mental health issues yeah. uh, as a result. Yeah, it just kind of exacerbates things that might have been under the surface that are bearable, you know, it just the threshold kind of changes, right? Because people are stressed about other stuff as well. I guess that's part of why this whole like going offline thing is not coincidental either, right? Because this past few months have been stressful on everybody. And it, it is kind of a time of reflection as well, right? So both my career stage thing, getting tenure, being more senior in my career, and also all the pandemic stuff and current event stuff, time to think and isolate and reflect and stuff. So it's like, okay, you know, I've been thinking about getting offline more for a while. Another thing about being online so much, it just takes your brain away from the in-person stuff. And it's so cliche, right? Obviously, you want to focus more on your loved ones back home and real life relationships, blah, blah. But it's true, right? That if you think so much in in cyberspace, or such a 90s term, if you're thinking so much online space, you're not thinking as much in in meat space. (laughs) It's funny because it is cliche, but then we don't act on it, right? We're still addicted to our social media. And then you're actually doing something about it. And you need more examples of people doing that to feel like it's okay. Now people are bringing up the whole detox, whatever. And other people are like always online. They think it's fine. You just have to learn to adapt. And it's true. It's because we don't have, you could say the willpower, but they're designed to get us to stay on there. And it affects everyone differently. I guess a good example of this in real life and meat spaces are sugar addiction, right? We all have probably more sugar than we need. And it's kind of a scientific fact, but very few people are going to be like, I'm going to drastically cut down my sugar consumption without any problems, right? It's like, okay, I'm like young and healthy. I know it's not the best for me, but it's fine. And if you actually have problems with diabetes and other things, you have to cut down and stuff. So I'm reminded that our online diets, right? I'm not saying everyone should cut down. For most people, it's fine. But the other thing that reminded me that you just said was that I think that having role models for people who've done this without any sort of crisis, right? You you hear about these detox things like, oh yeah, I, I'm like addictive gambler or addicted to social media and it ruined my life. I'm just on social media 24-7 and arguing with people and like neglecting my job, my relationships. And I got fired because I posted all this stuff on social media. I'm ranting at work. You can imagine the extreme cases, right? Someone has a really serious addiction to social media or online media, and it got them in trouble with their work or their personal life. And it kind of ruined their life. And I'm reforming cold turkey, whatever. But for myself and for for some other people, I know it's not a crisis moment. uh, But yet we choose to do that. And in a way, it's harder to do, right? Because there is no crisis to do it right so so i think more boring examples would be good right not a very interesting example 
No, that makes so much sense that you put it that way. Intentionality is like lacking in almost everything that we have. And that has a lot to do with like habits. And you brought up sugar, same with like alcohol or coffee, yeah. right? I, I had a conversation with another podcast guest. We didn't record that one. It was just a conversation. I think this word intentional she brought up. And I think I'll use that in the newsletter. The other thing about putting all this stuff online was that I wasn't very intentional about it, right? It was cool because I could just make videos or write articles or stuff on my mind. It was all like informative and it was all around certain themes, but I would just put a lot of stuff out there. And I didn't really think about a target audience as much. Again, I think it's great for beginners to do this because, you know, when you're a beginner producing content, the goal is just volume, right? Just get stuff out there, do stuff and write something every day, every week, make a video, edit some stuff, just keep cranking it so you can get better at it. And I, I did do a lot of that, which was great for me. But now I think I want to be more intentional about my sharing. In the sense, I force myself to be in this newsletter format or to email people or to have these um, podcasts, these long form conversations. It forces intentionality. So I, I think, what do I really want out of this episode or this um, newsletter? Who do I want to share this with and why? Right. Whereas before, it's just, I'm just going to throw videos over the wall. And then some people might find it great. I felt good about doing that in the past. So that word intentional, I think, is really important. Yeah, I think that get, it, that does get back to how we all just scroll through our feed. So one of the reasons why you should just post anything you want is because everyone's going to forget about it anyway. So don't feel bad if no one looks at it. In that stage, you're f- afraid and you just need to build that yep. muscle, right, of yep. just posting. Now it's like, okay, we've trained that muscle and yep. we need to be intentional about working out or whatever that net metaphor means, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's turning into an episode where we just compare ourselves to celebrities. I think the, the one with Nadia would do the same thing. There's that Michael Jordan documentary that was just out, right? If you're going to be good at any sport, right? It starts off with you just playing the sport a lot. You obviously have to be passionate about it. And when you're young, I love playing basketball and just like a really competitive sport, right? You just like play basketball every day with your friends and you go shoot hoops every day. You just do it because like you love it. And you don't have a coach. You just are doing it. And then eventually you get kind of decently good at it. Or tennis is a great example, right? You get a coach and then you get signed and then it's serious. If you're going to be a professional athlete, any domain, right? Like it's serious work, like their workouts, their diet, their coaching, their whole minds and bodies are a hundred percent finely tuned to be the best at that sport, right? It's completely intentional, right? They're not just messing around in the court, right? Because they might injure themselves or they might overexert. They know when the season is, when the most important games are. So they ramp up to that. They have to rest. So I think I'm moving toward more that than like the very beginning, which is great. That's where you have your love for your sport or for like software, right? If you're just hacking on software early on, it's important to just play with stuff, right? Make replicas or clones of your favorite projects. Make a Twitter clone. Make Obviously your Twitter clone is at production scale, but like just do it and make an app for your friends just to like do it. But then when you get you know serious about it, if you want to make a company or you want to do research or innovate on something, you have to be really intentional about what is the value? What is the new thing here? So it's a lot of stuff I threw out there. <laughs> and like you said, it doesn't stop you from doing those kind of experiments when you're older. It's just that kind of your main thing, you're, you, you might have a specific goal in mind or something, right? Yeah, and I guess like to kind of wrap off that, wrap up the hour. I haven't really thought about a really clear mission statement or whatever yet, but the content I want to produce is going to be longer form, right? So I think these podcasts are great. These long form sorts of thought out things. And also the stuff I want to write would be these PDFs or documents that are non-trivial. The stuff that I want to produce that I just linked from my website 
there'll be much fewer of them. So for example, right now I'm working on a thing. It's going to be posted to a newsletter, to a preview. It, it's basically a reflection on the past six years, working my way toward tenure and stuff, which is very expected because I wrote this whole thing about my PhD years ago. So it's not a surprise, but it's like that sort of writing took years to create this passage, right? It's not just some random person just holds on a camera and starts blabbering, right? It took years of experience to distill down these messages, something that kind of is my voice rather than like, oh, I'm just going to make a video about this or about that. So moving toward fewer things to produce, starting anew, but definitely not the kind of tweet style. Oh yeah, here's a random observation about this thing. My friend uh, Chris has a newsletter as well, and he posted this phrase that I liked. He was talking about the idea of friction mm-hmm. and how you're actually introducing friction on purpose because it causes better intentionality versus most apps and websites. They care about engagement, right? They just want you to show up and look at it passively. Um, and I think that's what we want. We want to introduce friction on purpose, even though it seems bad. Like, why would you want to make it harder for people to consume your content? Podcasts are a great example. Someone needs to actually sit there for an hour or half an hour if they speed it up at most, right? They need to be dedicated. They can't just be a drive-by. I'm just going to skim through this like a passage. So yeah, that's absolutely right. Introducing the friction. I I like this analogy he had about the kind of user experience here. It's like apps want to decrease friction and they want to get you engaged and hooked. By definition, consumer apps want to be easy to use, you know, casual games of like they don't want you to learn a ton because they want you to be able to play and get some value right away and incrementally get value. But for the sorts of stuff I want to write now or put out there, it's for a very niche audience. It's not for everybody. I think that vibe is absolutely right. Like going deeper, right? I, you want to make actual connection, relationship. Listening to someone's podcast makes you feel closer just because it's a podcast than just reading a tweet. Yeah, I have these articles that I wrote last summer about communicating fast and slow. It all goes with the friction thing, right? So the most fast forms of communication are social media replies. You know, you're just kind of retweeting and replying to stuff. And it's very superficial, very conversational. And then like the more intentional, slower things are like recording a podcast, writing a long form article. I mean, that the slowest is really writing a book, right? Like writing a old school, traditional book that takes you years of research and effort. But when you read that, it's like, wow, that's substantive, right? If you're in that audience and you read someone's book and it's good, you're like, okay, clearly they didn't just make random stuff up. They distill down years of wisdom and deep thought and, and editing. So I think I want to move more toward that end of the spectrum. Yeah, the the phrase, the medium is the message. Yeah, it's funny because like, you know, none of these are new ideas, right? But they're just reinforced today. And there's a really concrete example of this. So I'll think about that in the later newsletter updates and stuff. But but thanks for helping me brainstorm here that I've been having these thoughts. It just happened like a week ago. Yeah, for sure. This is fun. Cool. This is great.